Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the TLS podcast. With the summer holidays upon us, now seems a good time to take stock and revisit some memorable moments from a year's worth of podcasts. This week, we remember fully and truthfully the relationship between the poets Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon and consider a new clutch of novels in the British Library's Women Writers series dedicated to once popular writers. But first, the writer and comedian David Baddiel has written a book called Jews Don't Count, which explores the insidious, pervasive, exclusionary nature of progressive anti-Semitism. He spoke with Toby Lishtig about how and why one of the most persecuted minorities in history continues to be overlooked. So hello, David. Hello, Toby. How are you? Um, I'm good, thanks. I'm good. Um, Firstly, what is it about the very word Jew that seems to make people squirm so much. Yeah, well, we could probably talk, spend the whole podcast talking about that. <laughs> uh, one of the things I've noticed since the book's been knocking about on social media in terms of like me putting out uh, pictures of the cover and talking about it is a few people have said, oh, I don't know whether or not I, you know, I'm interested, but I don't know if I'd be happy reading that in public. It's kind of a provocative title, yes, but I think that's primarily about what you've just talked about, which is my sort of unvarnished use of the word Jew rather than Jewish person, although it's interesting how naff it would sound to say Jewish people don't count as a title, but Jews don't count have much more power. And part of that power is to do with the negativity and the negative energy that I think surrounds the word. In the book, I talk about this and I quote, actually, um, I take the liberty of quoting a bit from my 2004 is it novel the secret purposes uh which is about the internment of jewish german refugees on the isle of man uh in which a translator herself not jewish is trying to translate a nazi woman's use of the phrase you didn't and uh you didn't i think literally means jewesses but she can't get the sort of venom that the nazi said the word into the word jewesses 
And to cut a long story short, in, in that bit, she realises that the way to do it is to, co- is to use the phrase Jew women rather than Jewish women or Jewesses. And I like that because I think it demonstrates how weirdly negative this word still is if you don't grammatically soften it with the suffix ish which in itself is quite funny the, the idea the, you know that ish itself is a kind of a yeah jewish you know, thing yeah. yeah and i've heard times people saying i'm jew ish meaning that i'm sort of jewish but you know i wouldn't describe myself as an out and out jew yeah exactly and as i was writing that bit i think it came to me that it's remarkable how the difference between saying a jewish banker uh, a jewish boy between jew banker jew boy that's all you need to make those things Nazi, really, uh, and racist. And no other, there is no other, I can't think of another word uh, that would operate in that way. And I think what that demonstrates is the enormous uh, sort of the singularity, the evil singularity of the word Jew. And I'm using singularity in the kind of physics sense there, that it's packed with the history of its own, uh, the racism of years and years and years and years of Christian scapegoating of Jews as evil. That is why people have to say Jewish. And there isn't really a, another word that I can think of like that. So, yeah, when I when I decided to put my bio on Twitter as being just Jew, I'm aware of that. The weird thing is, it's also quite a funny word. I think for Jews, it's quite funny. Well, it's, I think it, it's, it, you're absolutely right. It's funny. And one of the reasons it's funny is because it's so freighted and because it confuses people. I mean, you know, you know Jew, Jews can embrace it. Um, Non-Jews sort of squirm around and not quite sure what to do about it. And it's exactly that discomfort that you're, you know, you're exploiting with that. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's, that's more widely what you're, you know, to a certain extent, that, that, that discomfort and that unsureness, that unsureness about where to place Jews is partly what your book's about. I mean, it's probably worth just talking a little bit more about precisely what it's aimed at, because there are, I mean, there are loads of books about anti-Semitism. Um, we all, you know, uh, we've all read different takes on the long and bitter history and, you know, and more recent examples. But yours is a little different. It's aimed specifically at a particular group. And I just wondered if you could talk a bit about what kind of anti-Semitism you're getting at here. Well, yeah, I mean, the book in a very rather deliberate way, but to try and avoid confusion, I suppose, uh, or misrepresentation uh, is a critique, I guess, of progressives or progressive discourse around, and specifically progressive discourse around identity politics and around ethnicity. Because, or actually, no, not just ethnicity, ethnicity primarily, but also around minorities. So minorities would also include, I would say, gender minorities and disabled people and all that kind of stuff. So just the sort of like the way in which progressive uh, thinking by progressive, I mean more than just the left. I mean a kind of wide swathe of people who would consider themselves, I guess, right thinking and liberal thinking uh, have become much more concerned in over the last 20 years with those kind of issues than they have about class, basically. That if those people might have defined themselves at one time as being primarily concerned about class and fighting some kind of class struggle, they now are fighting, I would say, more of an identity struggle, uh, which is that all identities that are not white, Christian, mainstream, you know, cisgendered, straight men uh, need to be, the conversation needs to be recentered away from that norm and taking into account the concerns and the identity of these other minorities. And it's those people I'm interested in because it's those people for whom I think Jews still seem ambiguous within that concern. 
that Jews are still a, are the minority that they still don't quite know what to do with, where to place. And, and part of the way, part of the way that seems to manifest itself is is, is not so much in in their kind of deliberate anti-Semitism towards Jews, but their sort of failure to spot and acknowledge it where it, it happens in other instances, and, and almost. I mean, I found this myself, a kind of uh, a sort of an impulse to tell Jewish people what is and isn't anti-Semitic and what they can and cannot take offence to, that they don't tend to do with other minorities and marginalised communities. Would you say that's right? Yeah, I mean, the book begins with a series of examples of exactly what you're talking about. And what I try and do with those examples is uh, say, look, most people think of anti-Semitism in a very direct way. They think of the Nazis, basically, and or, or neo-Nazis or whoever, people who hate Jews, want to kill Jews, and it's a very active, direct form of hatred. And, and liberals are, without doubt, still would condemn that and would think it was bad. Uh, but the book is not about that, partly because I don't think that needs much deconstruction. OK, I don't think, you know, people who hate Jews and want to kill Jews that their utterances don't need to be deconstructed or thought about much, they just need to be resisted. What I'm talking about is something much more elusive than that, which is a series of absences, a series of lack of concerns, of uh, being dismissive or not as worried about instances of offence towards Jews, which I believe, and that's the point of the polemic, if those instances were about other minorities, the same people would be up in arms about it. And so it's more about what's missing it's what's not being said what's not being applied to Jews uh, some kind of safety or concern or protectiveness which uh, progressive people would normally apply that is not happening to Jews um, and you, you mentioned this list of examples and it, it the book begins very powerfully with with, with several instances I, I wonder if um, just for our listeners you could give us one of these examples to, to kind of spell out what you're saying well I could give you the in a way one of the most obvious example is one which has been for me knocking about quite a long time and may not be the right example in a way because uh, there are other issues involved with it but I'm still going to use it for, for now which is I um, go to Chelsea uh, football club or I used to when, before the pandemic I'm a season ticket holder at Chelsea and for years and years and years whenever Tottenham Hotspur or indeed anything related to Tottenham Hotspur they didn't even need to be playing but their score might come up on the scoreboard or something like that. Uh, a number, a, a huge number, I mean, 20,000 people possibly of the 40,000 in the ground would chant the word Yiddo uh, venomously at the scoreboard, at the Tottenham player, at the ex-Tottenham player, whatever, with associated anti-Semitic abuse, hissing to represent gas chambers and songs about Auschwitz, whatever. And this continued, I've been going to Chelsea a long time, over which period, and in a way this is central to the book because the book is really about the way that attitudes have changed but perhaps not so much for Jews. Over the period of time that I was going to Chelsea, I noticed that, correctly, all the notices appeared in the programme about racist abuse. And you get suddenly kicked, racism out of football existed. And, and as we see now, you know, there's a, a vast machinery and very respectful machinery to try and stop racism happening at football matches. And yet, when in, I think it was 2010, a bloke behind me and my brother just started shouting, fuck the Yids, fuck the fucking Yids, and then fuck the Jews, fuck the fucking Jews, coming out of an enormous crowd-based chance of Yiddo, 
nothing was done. And none of the uh, stewards who were, you know, ordered to remove people and remove them for life for racist abuse did anything. And eventually me and my brother decided, and this is after years and years of this happening, to try and create a film called The Y Word. It's very deliberately called The Y Word because even though I have said the word yid, I am interested in why the word yid is somehow more sayable uh, than the N word or the P word. And create this film called The Y Word. It was very difficult to get it made, very difficult to get support for it. Um, and it created a lot of controversy because the film explicitly tries to draw a comparison between the Y word and the N word and says why, you know, it has in fact Ledley King, uh, the footballer who used to play for Spurs, the black footballer, saying there was a word beginning with N that used to be shouted at me at football matches, not anymore. But this friend of mine said, well, you know, the Y word isn't as bad as the N word. And I said, why not? And he said, because Jews are rich. And I just thought, wow, I mean, that's unbelievable. That, that he's is, still a friend. <laughs> he's still a friend. And, and to be honest with you, I was sort of grateful to him for him still, you know, for him bringing out so clearly what really lies behind a lot of the progressive suspicion around extending this concern to Jews, which is that, oh, aren't Jews basically powerful and privileged and rich and you know do they really need this kind of thing is that's what he was really saying um the 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 because jews are rich comment is obviously awful in in many ways um it it also plays into a lot of what you're talking about about the reasons behind um the anti-semitism you're talking about and it's about this this perception of jews um uh, as both high and low status, um, you know, so they're kind of simultaneously deemed to be rich and powerful and string pulling and also um, other and, uh, you know, in the, in the most extreme circumstances, dirty and, you know, um, you know, sort of somehow below the normal standard of humanity. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and how that's fed into the issues you're discussing in the, in the book. That is also key to the far right. It's a, it's a type of thinking about Jews that isn't just to do with progressives, but I think it completely seeps into the way progressives think about Jews. And it's a kind of fairly unique, although I'm perfectly happy to hear from another minority who feels it applies to them as well, but a fairly unique, I think, double status, high and low, that applies to Jews via the eyes of racists. So that is to say that Jews can very easily be called by racists all the low status things that, that they apply to all minorities dirty thieving stinking vile the, the whole animalistic untermension thing but jews have a p- pretty unique thing which is that in the same breath those same people will say that jews are in control of the world that jews are pulling the strings behind you know politics and money and all the rest of it and the nazis themselves would obviously picture Jews both as, uh, you know, sort of vile, semi-human things and as moneyed capitalists striding the globe carrying money bags. Um, I mean, the joining thing was that Jew would always be ugly and kind of alien. Um, But my point in terms of the book is that I think there is, and this is a very complicated thing to do with the aesthetic in which evil is actually, you know, visualized in our culture. Uh, and I think it applies in all sorts of ways in Punch and Judy and in Bond villains and all sorts of ways, witches. It, it, you know, that uh, the idea of the Jew, that there spills over from that for people who are concerned about essentially capitalism, that there is a way of picturing the fat cat capitalist 
which spills over to a very ancient aesthetic about the way Jews are pictured. So, you know, to go into, say, that mural that Jeremy Corbyn uh, got into issues with some years ago, that mural was painted by somebody who would very much think of themselves as a progressive, and yet it saw no problem in picturing those people who were playing Monopoly on the backs of the world in a very Jewish way. Indeed, two of them were actually Jewish, Warburg and Rothschild. And so the problem is that aesthetic of the ugly, uh, overbearing, powerful, Jewish fat cat applies for the right and I think for some members of the left. And I think it, it seeps into people's subconscious who, who aren't even particularly far left. To be honest. Do, do you feel like you're fighting this battle to a certain extent alone? Because, I mean, I, I one of the brilliant things about this book to me was that it pr- presents arguments that I sort of half thought about before, but, I, you know, I do agree with you about pretty much everything. And, and I, But it's not something that I come across a lot, this kind of, this pointing out of these holes. And I just wonder whether you feel like, A, whether, you know, there are others fighting this battle alongside you, and B, whether you think the tide's turning a little bit. Um, well, I certainly do feel I've been I've been fighting it for quite some time <laughs> on my own and then other people joined in a bit. So I was talking about anti-Semitism, what I would call progressive anti-Semitism. I tend to avoid the phrase anti-Semitism on the left because I think it extends far beyond the political space of uh, what are people consider to be the traditional left. Uh, but I've been talking about progressive anti-Semitism. I think I wrote an article for the, Sun, for the Daily Telegraph about what I called then the fashionability of anti-Semitism in 2010. So well before Corbyn. Uh, and, I, and, it, and I was on social media, I was talking about it and getting much trolling about it or whatever. I mean, long before, uh, I mean, not that, you know, this makes me, that's rather sort of blowing my own trumpet, but it's true. Uh, long before many more people kind of started talking about it. But one thing about the book is it is a critique of progressives, which is a complicated thing anyway, because I would see myself as a progressive. Uh, and I'm sure the progressives who it's going to piss off will you know, see it as divisive. And I'm sure I'm going to get all that. But it is also a critique of Jews. Um, quite a lot. Quite a lot of it talks about what I perceive to be shame on the part of Jews um, about sort of being Jewish. Uh, and maybe specifically, not just specifically, but British Jews. The book mentions at one point a joke, uh, which is that someone once said to me that the headline in the Jewish Chronicle uh, every week uh, is essentially they hate us. And I said, no, it's not. It's not. It's they hate us. And let's not make a fuss about it (laughs) because Jews, British Jews are both Jewish and British, which means they're kind of reserved and don't like to make a fuss. And therefore, it always felt to me and still feels to me like uh, kicking up too much calling out stuff too much. And I use that phrase advisedly because that's what happens with other minorities. Uh, But calling out stuff that might be considered to be anti-Semitic, using your lived experience, again, something that is part of that discourse, to say, I'm not very comfortable with this, is something which Jews still don't do that much. I I totally agree with that. And I I think you're, you're right that it is very difficult, very different in America. Um, and I, I've certainly got American friends who are sort of quite mystified by the, the sort of anti-Semitism that you're, that, that you're pointing out, uh, you know, amongst progressive types. They sort of, it doesn't seem to manifest itself in quite the same way. There's obviously, 
you know, anti-Semitism in the guise of Israel hatred and various other forms of it in the States. But I, I do agree that it's a sort of a, it seems to be a particularly British phenomenon, this thing that you're talking about. I think in America, and I, I, I mean, this is me, I'm sorry, out of my comfort zone here, but I think in America, even though a lot of it is about Israel here, in America, it really seems to be about Israel, as far as I can put it It really seems to be the Democratic Party and, you know, schisms that they, they might be having about Israel. Although, interestingly, that example I use early on, which actually I only put in the book late, late on, I kind of forgot about it. But I think it's actually one of the most extreme examples where Justin Webb of the Today programme actually said, I use this, in the, as you said, in these examples at the start, Justin Webb was talking to a, an American pollster uh, before I think the 2016 election and he was mentioning these problems in the Democratic Party uh, over Israel and Justin Webb just says kind of out loud might one idea be for the Democratic Party to kind of officially state that anti-Semitism is a less important racism than others Uh, you know that it's still bad but it's sort of not as important as others and he just says this and to be fair to Justin Webb he phoned me after I, I pointed out, oh, this is an example of what you've just said, me feeling I'm fighting a lone battle. I was the only one who seemed to notice it. I put it on Twitter and said, is this okay? Blah, blah, blah. And then Justin Webb actually called me and said, no, 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 I was just trying to illustrate what I feel is a way of thinking in the Democratic Party, although he didn't put it like that, but that's fine. But my point is still, you know, that seems to be in the air. You know, it's just in the air and someone can say it. And there isn't an enormous online backlash to a type of very, very, very dangerous racism that historically has you know, killed an enormous amount of people uh, being described as a less important racism. Badil in conversation with Toby Lishtig about his book Jews Don't Count, published by the TLS. Still to come, hidden love and forgotten works as we reveal the secret partnership that informed some of our greatest war poetry and review once popular female writers revived by the British Library. And if you like what you've heard so far, please do subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode. I quite like Ansible. The term was coined by Ursula Le Guin to describe a fictional device, um, which is used in quite a few of her texts, that sends and receives messages over any distance instantaneously, which kind of allows for communicational time travel without needing warp speed, which is also in the dictionary. And that's gone on to be used by a lot of other science fiction authors as a specific object. So it's not even just a word, it's a specific device um, that hasn't been invented, but is very prevalent now in science fiction. Probably being invented somewhere at this very moment. This woman, Isabella Jones, clearly is the Mrs Jones of Keats's letters. And indeed, there's a rather beautiful letter she writes to Taylor, Keats's publisher, after Keats's death. So there's no doubt that 
Isabella Jones, Mrs. Jones, as they keep calling her. No doubt that she is the woman. But who she was, how old she was, what her background was, what she was doing, living alone in these rooms in Queen Square, nobody could quite work out. And if I could find the identity of Mrs. Jones, that would really be something. Napoleon's wife, Josephine, was a Mason before she met him and continued to be involved in that. I was reading about um, research being done in her letters. Sometimes she signs them with the parallel lines and, and that are considered to be signs of Masonic membership. They're sort of the written equivalent of the secret handshake type thing. Exactly. And you say Frances McDormand's, her, her performance, she's amazing. She's amazing. And what I loved about her was that um, she's obviously, obviously a very humble, intuitive and intelligent actor. And she doesn't draw your attention. Your attention draws to her because she is so compelling. But she moves uh, around them as if she's one of them. And when I was watching it at first, it was almost as if the extras had taken over the film because she was the outsider to their story. Do you think this will be one that might win awards? I think so. I, I think both the director, the cinematographer and Francis McDermott, I think they will be strong contenders for the Oscars. I did read somewhere, though, that um, Francis McDermott is so down to earth that she probably will turn up to the Oscars wearing her Crocs. <laughs> But if she does win the Oscar, I shall be uh, raising my glass to her because I think it's a fantastic performance. And we are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer. Exclusive, that is, to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent in whatever currency you use, you will receive six issues of the TLS. And that's print and digital. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Later on, we revisit some forgotten novels of the 20th century. But first, when you think about the poetry of the First World War, two men's names are perhaps remembered more than most. Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon changed the public perception of the war and echoed the brutality and savagery experienced by those who fought in it. In the midst of it all, they found each other, briefly but deeply. The researcher and poet Edwin Lynch casts new light on their work and bond. It's quite an interesting story, actually, how the two ended up in Craig Lockhart. So Wilfred Owen was there convalescing after a very traumatic experience on the front where he had been in a shell attack. And he was sent back to Edinburgh to recover, mostly emotionally, uh, from what they then called shell shock, but what we now understand as PTSD. The reason that Siegfried Sassoon was there was because he had written a letter in protest uh, of the war. Um, He had published that letter in the Times. He had it read out in the House of Commons and he was going to be court-martialed for his insubordinates. It was uh, a huge embarrassment for the military to have a company commander with a military cross in this sort of very public role, criticising the role of the military. But his friend, actually, Sassoon's friend Robert Graves, stepped in, also another war poet, and convinced Sassoon and the military to uh, go to Craig Lockhart instead uh, as a sort of (laughs) patched up uh, sick leave instead of having to be court-martialed for that. So he wasn't there really for any PTSD reasons. He was there to avoid being court-martialed. And it it seemed a very reluctant choice on his part. It seems like he would have rather gone ahead of a trial (laughs) instead of having to go to hospital. But uh, in terms of the history, it means that that's exactly where he needed to be uh, because when Wilfred Owen found out that he was in the same building, he he worked up the courage for weeks to go and knock on his door. And the the first image that we get of him as Wilfred Owen goes and knocks on Siegfried Sassoon's door is a memorable one. It's it's Siegfried Sassoon in a purple dressing gown, polishing his golf clubs. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of my favourite anecdotes, really, from the two of them is... uh, Owen is standing at this at this door, knocking on it with uh, several copies, not just one, but several copies of Sassoon's latest poetry collection under his arm. And he's uh, he's going to ask Sassoon to inscribe them for him and his friends. But the, there's one thing that didn't make it into the article, actually, is a letter that Owen wrote to his mother just a few days prior to him finally knocking on Sassoon's door, where he's talking about how much he admires Sassoon's poetry. He says, I've just been reading Siegfried Sassoon and I'm feeling at a very high pitch of emotion. Nothing like his trench life sketches has ever been written or ever will be written. Shakespeare reads vapid after these. It is nice, isn't it? So he was, so Wilfred Owen really was, before he'd ever met him, he really was a hero to him in all sorts of ways. Yeah, absolutely. It seems that he'd been reading Sassoon for quite a while. And, you know, and not just one copy lying around, but several in order to get them signed. Um, and as you say, he had to work up the courage to go and to go and see him. So he was a great, he was a huge figure in his life. And it must have been incredibly important to him that Sassoon was so welcoming and friendly and, yes. and ready to talk to him. The way that Sassoon talks about it in his... Um, in his autobiography, it, looking back, you know, from the 20s, he, he writes an awful lot about Owen in retrospect, whereas the material we have from Owen is very much like the letters he writes to his mother from Craig Lockhart, which is kind of an interesting change as well. You know, Owen's writing very much as it's happening, but Sassoon is looking back after 10 years. But in Sassoon's diaries, he uh, he talks about how 
he just took an immediate liking to Owen. And I, I get the sense from the, the biography that he's he's quite pleased at having an admirer around, you know, someone to sort of tell him how wonderful he is and how uh, interesting his poetry is. Well, I would think anyone anyone who wears a purple dressing gown to, <laughs> to just rest would, yes. would be that sort of person. <laughs> and, uh, he, he says, I had taken an instinctive liking to him and felt that I could talk freely. And it was only when Owen was leaving in that first meeting that uh, he told Sassoon that he also wrote poetry, though none of it had yet been published. And Sassoon really encourages him. You know, he just says that the last thing he says before Owen leaves the room is, sweat your guts out writing poetry. And so how, how, do we, how can we see um, Sassoon's influence taking effect then? How did he... How did he shape the style or redirect it? Mm, it's, it seems like a lot of it was getting Owen away from, you know, originally Owen's poems were very overly influenced by the Romantics, by Keats and Shelley and Wordsworth, and didn't talk about the war whatsoever. They were just very flowery, unoriginal, we might say, poems. And Sassoon encouraged Owen to write more about his own experiences rather than trying to emulate the style of his predecessors. And what's really interesting is Sassoon doesn't tell him he can't use any of the romantic influences. He actually encourages Owen to think about reworking them. So in the poem that really changed Sassoon's perception of Owen, which is Owen's sonnet, Anthem for Doomed Youth, that's one where Sassoon actually noted in his biography that it had this beautiful, in his own words, sumptuous epithets and large-scale imagery. It had impressive affinities with Keats, whom he took as his supreme exemplar. So it, it sounds like, based on the account that Sassoon gives, he really just encourages Owen to draw from his own experiences on the war, but marry them somehow to his grounding in romantic poetry. And that's why Owen's work is, I think, so memorable, because it does both things at once, and it creates something very new out of it. To say that they only spent three months together, they achieved such a, a deep intimacy. I mean, there's a sense of of private language and, and in-jokes, such as a couple develops over years. Yeah, that's very true, actually. I mean, the, the way that you describe the letters, they have this kind of, um, well, one of the things that comes up again and again, and I don't know whether it's just in their letters or, or if it's something that that occurs throughout um, Wilfred Owen's work, is this this kind of cosmic imagery yes. that he seems to draw. Yeah, really, that was something that struck me so much when I read them for the first time, actually. Um that image in uh, the opening letter where he talks about, I spun around you a satellite for a month, but I shall swing out soon, a dark star in the orbit where you will blaze. It does that, I mean, it's something that I, I talk about a little bit in the article, how it seems like Owen imagines them as being two connected particles, just like flung out in space. And that there is a deep intimacy to that. You know, there is a, a sense that they are cosmically connected. And I mean, my own theory is that the fact that Sassoon wasn't even meant to be in Craig Lockhart, but was there by virtue of needing to avoid a court-martial, but always knowing that they were not going to avoid the front, that they knew they were going to have to go back, because this was still August 1917, and there was still a whole year of the war left. And one of the nice things about the intimacy that I suppose you might not expect is that there's a lot of joy in it. As Thea says, there's in-jokes, and they spend their time laughing and kind of slightly poking fun at some other poets and 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 you know you get a, a real sense of that it's it's a sort of blossoming that they've found each other and as you say within it's sort of sandwich between two appalling experiences as it were you know you go to the war and then you have this sort of respite which must have been wonderful and and also as you say with the knowledge that they that that they're going to have to go back mm. and i think in in uh some of Sassoon's retrospectives he talks about how uh, he actually uses the word 
he refers to himself as Owen's hero. His hero, and he's talking about Owen here, his hero being in sore need. He could bring him gentle and intuitive support. So this is Owen tiding over inevitable moods of bitterness and depression in Sassoon. He talks about how Wilfred's praises heartened and helped me. It was then that we vowed our confederacy to unmask the ugly face of wars. And in the words of Thomas Hardy, wars apology wholly stultify. So it sounds like it starts off as this very teacher-student sort of relationship where Sassoon imagines himself as this superior officer, superior poet, um, and then suddenly he starts to realise that they're much more on an equal basis, that, that Wilfred Owen offers him this camaraderie and this solidarity that he didn't uh, know he'd been missing until that point. And, and this tendency, obviously, to uh, sort of simplify the story and, and to see selectively uh, really gets to the nub of, 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 of your piece as well. There's always been, uh, always, um, a reluctance to acknowledge the nature of the relationship between uh, these two men you call it a commitment to the platonic I mean the, it, it's something that I I was quite shocked by when I first started reading about the war poets I was in my undergraduate degree and, and it was uh, standard curriculum uh, Wilfred Owen, Siegfried Sassoon uh, here was their criticism of the war effort here was you know onomatopoeia metaphor symbolism that's done moving on next poet and it always seemed strange to me when I did discover that there was that there was so much more which has been very conveniently left out of the narrative and I think there are reasons, there are legitimate reasons for that. Primarily, this is uh, in a period of history where homosexuality was illegal. Um, it was still seen as an act rather than an identity. And as members of the military, they could be both court-martialed and brought to trial in a civil court. So there was this kind of <laughs> double threat of, ahead of them of being caught out. And so I think, you know, from the four biographies that we have of Wilfred Owen, three of them choose not to mention this or choose to explain it away. And I think that's a sort of lineage of historiography where the first biographer of Wilfred Owen was his brother Harold, writing in 1965, and homosexuality was going to be illegal until 1966 or 7. And so, you know, there is definitely uh, a reason for perhaps evading it in that story where it would put him and his family at risk. And, you know, later historians borrow from earlier historians, and so it just gets passed down. The thing that I find curious is that, uh, you know, Sassoon's biographer, Max Egremont, um, has a, a full history of Sassoon's uh, repressed homosexuality, and there doesn't seem to be any real controversy around saying that Sassoon was uh, uh, gay at the time, um, but there is for Owen. And so maybe that is also why the relationship has been left to the side, is that, you know, Sassoon is kind of, you know, there isn't really any much controversy in his biographer, but with, the, uh, with Owen's there is. And what do we learn? I mean, what, once we kind of accept, once we admit this context into the story, what do we learn as we look again then, at, you know, with clear eyes at the poetry? You mentioned Shadwell Stare, which is a, um, a poem that, that people have kind of returned to and, and, and looked at again. Shadwell Stare is an interesting one. Um, he writes it in early 1918 when he's in London. He, there's accounts of you know Owen possibly going around the East End of London and cruising, and Shadwell Stare is, is you know sometimes read as a poem that is his experience of that. Um, the speaker of the poem is a ghost who declares that they have flesh both firm and cool, and eyes tumultuous as the gems of moons and lamps in the full Thames. And so at first you know, it can be read uh, or misread in some respects as Owen walking around London and thinking of the ghosts of the front. But that doesn't account for slang terms uh, where haunting is another word for cruising and ghosts is a word for closeted gay men. And so there's a couple of layers operating in this poem, which ends with a curious sort of image. Uh, Owen writes, I walk till the stars of London wane and dawn creeps up the shadow stair. But when the crowing sirens blare, I with another ghost am lain. And so when you read this as a cruising poem, you actually understand it as being 
a quite radical, unexpected poem about Owen's promiscuity in the East End of London while he's on shore leave. And I think if you're steering away from acknowledging that Owen was possibly a homosexual or whatever label you wanted to affix, you completely miss the meaning of this poem and also miss an awful lot of uh, Owen's experience as someone who's going around in a society where his sexuality is illegal and certainly taboo. In a sense, it makes you wonder about that cosmic imagery again and and whether there's something about it that it's sort of him looking for a long view of history, looking mm, to, yes. to think of this as just a brief time and a, a brief moment in which how he is or how he wants to be isn't accepted, but, you know, that it's just it's just it's just a passage in time, a phase. Yes. And there's something bigger. It's also a way of um, it might be a way of identifying people but not as gendered or you know male or female or heterosexual or homosexual or whatever it is if you say I'm a particle and you're a particle and I'm you know I'm going to spin around then you can take that out of it then it's just Mm. you know it's just bodies colliding yes yeah exactly and I think a lot of uh Owen's growing awareness of that at this point is to do with the fact that he meets Siegfried Sassoon and has this relationship with him that we know to be a romantic relationship and then immediately goes to London where he meets another community of gay literary men of letters and suddenly realises that you know, he is part of a, of a wider group, that, that he isn't so isolated anymore. Edwin Lynch on Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon. Now, it's notoriously difficult to predict which books will strike a chord with readers, even in the year in which they are published, let alone know which will stand the test of time. In a new series, the British Library has given new life to some works by female writers long forgotten. A lover of forgotten books, Lucy Scholes, has read some of them and joined us to extol their virtues. There are people here who I really wasn't that aware of, but um, somebody called Mary Essex, um, who was, I think this is just one of the many um, pseudonyms that she used. Uh, I think her real name was um, Ursula Bloom. And she published sort of over 500 novels and biographies in the course of her life and, and lots of short stories and newspaper columns. So that's a huge amount of work to now be sort of pretty much forgotten by most people today. And um, One of the things that's interesting about the British Library series is its criteria or its explanation of itself in Includes the word middlebrow. These are middlebrow writers. Would these writers have been defined as such at the time? Because I mean, the term was coined in the twenties, I think, by Punch, and it was already being kind of tussled over at the time. Some some people thought it was used it as a criticism. Virginia Woolf, famously, and J. B. Priestley, and others thought it was something to be praised. I mean, do you, how do you think these readers would have felt about the label if it was applied to them at the time? I mean, I think there's a kind of there's obviously an ongoing discussion that we we have, I think, probably ever since the time, you know, the term middle brow has first been used, this idea of high literature versus something that's more middle middle brow, possibly more readable, some might say, possibly, you know, the novels are more accessible than some of the particularly the sort of more high modernist, um, you know, literatures being written. I don't know. I mean, there's been great attempt in more recent years to really rescue these types of novels. I mean, someone like Nicola Bowman at Persephone is doing great work in bringing back a lot of forgotten writers, many of whom were termed middlebrow. I mean, she even wrote a book about the women's middlebrow novel, talking about how popular it was, how important these books were. Um, But there is still, you know, we still argue today about the problem of women writing novels that are set mostly in the domestic environment, and then people accusing those women 
moment of being kind of narrow-minded and writing about the small scale things in life and not the big wider world and then men do it and it's considered to be something much more important um so i think middlebrow it depends for some people today some readers today you know this is a sort of badge of honor that people love to find you know i think and i think particularly the british library series will find a lot of wonderful you know um rapturous kind of uh, audience with people who love the persephone books some of the virago modern classics list um i think their list does a sort of twofold thing there are there are writers who might fall into the middle brow side of things, but they also publish a lot of really interesting and quite innovative writers. Um, so there's going to be a big audience out there for these kind of books. And people, you know, some people really love it. And it's not necessarily a, you know, I think it depends where you stand on it. I don't think it's a particularly demeaning thing to be called, but then I do enjoy reading these books. I just think, I think those, these, those labels, I just, I, I, they all really annoy me. Actually, I find them fantastically unhelpful because they're, they're either used to punch up or punch down. And really, it just means that a lot of people enjoyed reading the book. Well, then Hilary Mantel is middle brown, so is Shakespeare, and so is Ulysses. A lot of people have enjoyed Ulysses. Actually, that you probably can't make that case. I mean, yeah. resist I mean, that point. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I just think it's rubbish. It just means something that a lot of people enjoyed, which is. But that's exactly the criticism. You know, if you were a high modernist, a high modernist, so, so say you're Virginia Woolf, who did take issue with, it, who did use it as a criticism. Her point was precisely that. You know, the middle brow people uh, people who who enjoyed middle ba- middle brow uh, books were sort of compromised and and you know not devoted to to the highest of, of artistic pursuit and and uh, you know all that sort of stuff I'm not at all agreeing with that I'm just wondering mm. I suppose at the at the fact of it of its being reclaimed and and as you said Lucy uh, Lucy Scholes Lucy S not Lucy D <laughs> um, <laughs> being reclaimed and worn as a as, as a badge of of honor I just think it's it's an interesting thing. Yeah, I think there is something about that, that it definitely is a, you know, I think even when I was, I sort of tweeted something about, you know, reading some of these books and there are certain people who follow me who are big fans of, of that sort of middle brow fiction, um, you know, were keen to know what they were like. They wanted to read them. You know, there are a load of people who like that and that's not... I don't think it's it's you know it's not better it's not worse it's you know you just people not, they like what they know they know what they like um and for some it can be a useful it's sort of almost gone so far that it's now a bit of a useful terminology to use perhaps even though obviously it you know at the end of the day it's still often yet to be punching down at them which is unfair father by elizabeth von arnim which i'm going to talk about because I, i've read it so I'm, I'm just showing off to say that i know what <laughs> i know what happens in that one perfect let's um, talk about it <laughs> well it's one of the more light-hearted ones as you say and it does it does start off quite jolly and it's very funny in some parts but even so the the situations and the plight of the characters they they're points they're very serious and really heartbreaking and and in some ways it seemed to me that it's a it's a book about loss and waste of human potential and happiness do you think they're they're generally um small f feminist books would you say that's a tricky question i mean whether the writers would have identified as feminist at the time whether they would identify as something as feminist in the way that we understand feminism today you know these are complicated things i think something like father is an interesting one it was one of the ones i was less taken with i have to admit but like you say it did bring up a lot of very interesting um, 
sort of issues from the day, particularly this idea of the, the, the surplus woman, I suppose, the women who were left over after the First World War who didn't find husbands. And then what did they do with themselves when they, as the protagonist of this book finds, that she's sort of no longer necessary in her father's life, or she sort of is in one way, but not another. He's marrying again, and she wants a life of her own. So it sort of chimes with things like Virginia Woolf's essay, you know, Room of One's Own. It chimes with something like um, Lolly Willows by Sylvia Townsend Warner, which is also about a, a woman who wants a, a, you know, a life of her own existence of her own outside of her family. Um, so these were clearly important issues of the day that women were grappling with. Um, you know, I don't, I honestly don't know enough, um, particularly about Elizabeth von Arman's um, own thoughts on feminism to be able to comment any further, I think, though. I suppose I don't mean were they card carrying feminists, but it seems to me that because women don't have any agency, then there's a huge sense of loss and frustration. And of course, as is always the way, this impacts very badly on the men as well. No, I mean, it doesn't It doesn't help anyone, that situation. And, and, and the book seems to be a laying out of saying this situation is a waste. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, the protagonist is, is sort of, you know, helpless. There are lots of funny bits and she does sort of manage to make her, make her way in the world um, outside of her father's home. But you're right, it's not always it's not easy and, and she is a sort of a stifled, she has lived a stifled life, let's say, put it that way. You know, she's trying to grasp this freedom while she can. Um, and I think this comes through in quite a few of the of the books as well. You know, I mean, there's even in the Tree of Heaven, there's a sense of, you know, the women being stuck behind while the men are off at war, which is not necessarily a great thing for the men, obviously, either. Um, and even in a later one, which, you know, another of my favourites, I think, from the series Chatterton Square by E.H. Young. Um, again, it's the sort of, you know, ostensibly a portrait of a family. Um, this is in the run up to the Second World War uh, and the sort of goings on the day to day comings and goings of these two families who live close to each other but underneath it you find these stories of, of two women who's again whose lives have been very affected by the limitations on them well three women I should say there are two central wives and mothers one of whom is in a very unhappy relationship her husband is a sort of pompous arse basically um, and uh, and the other one is a woman who's um, separated from her husband which is a great scandal obviously and then you have her friend a spinster like the character in in, in father um, who is completely dependent on this this friend of hers for offering her a home I mean these sorts of issues are you know clearly important you don't need to be drumming it into our heads that this is what these books are about to realize that the the, the plight of women at this time was you know quite a precarious one so some of them were very successful that we, we've established this and, and I've got reprints in, you know, in, in, and, and people are aware of them. But but who who is there? Who would you recommend that we have definitely never heard of, but we should read, do you think? Well, the one that really stood out for me on that was one called um, Oh, the Brave Music by Dorothy Evelyn Smith, which I really wasn't sure about when I sort of first started reading it. It's a coming of age novel and it's set just before the First World War. Um, the main character is a a young woman called Ruin Ashley and she's looking back on her life as a child and she grows up in sort of Yorkshire um, her father is a non-conformist minister their household is quite a dull one her mother is a very a, a sort of beauty uh, she's a she's a beautiful woman who gave up what could have been a sort of more interesting life to have children with this um, with her very boring husband who sort of keeps her um, you know again get very few um, very very limited existence really and just these terrible things happen to the family I mean you know one of their children dies um, the mother then runs away with a lover the father then goes off to be a sort of um, a missionary and this poor girl sort of has to live through this but it's not 
I don't know, there's not, it's not sort of sentimental. It's very beautifully done. And there's a, and actually it's very cleverly done in the way that you have the older, the narrator looking back on her younger life. And so you're able to sort of juxtapose things that she understands as an adult. Like as an adult, she understands how terrible her mother's life probably was for her. But as a child, she obviously just realized that something terrible was going on in her home, but she couldn't work out what it was. And I think it took me completely by surprise because it has echoes of, it has sort of Dickensian echoes to it. It made me think of things, you know, like the Bronte sisters, um, even a little bit of the Secret Garden, these sorts of stories. But it seemed very fresh and new and um, sort of urgent the way it was written. Uh, and yeah, that really took me by surprise. And I would definitely be more interested in looking at, um, I'd be interested to see what else uh, Dorothy Evelyn Smith had written, but I don't think she wrote, she certainly wasn't one of the more prolific writers included here. Thank you for listening to this edition of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell, looking back at the past year on this show. We'll be back in September with a return to regular programming. But in the meantime, issues of the TLS continue to appear every week and our summer double issue towards the end of this month looks set to be quite something. So why not look into a print and digital subscription? You'll find a special subscription offer just for podcast listeners in this episode's description. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye and see you in September. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.